0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com.
1: I'm Meghna Chakrabarti and this is The Jack Pod, our weekly special drop where on-point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello Megan. Well, today it's episode 8 of The Jackpod, and Jack usually this is the point at which I ask you about the headline for today's episode, but I'm going to break protocol this time because I already know that you want to talk about Wednesday's awful mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, where at least 18 people were killed and 13 injured. Now, this is the 565th mass shooting in the United States this year. That's according to a nonprofit data collection group called the Gun Violence Archive. And so, Jack, I thought, given the grim consistency of mass shootings in this country, what more of what new could be said? But you've got something for us.
2: Well, it's just that, you know, there was a book published about Iraq uh, 20-odd years ago with the title Republic of Fear, well, I don't know whether it fits Iraq then, or it certainly did under Saddam Hussein, but it fits America now, doesn't it? We are a republic of fear. And why is that? Because the state has failed in its, the government has failed in its fundamental responsibility, which is to protect the citizenry. In his myth of the social contract, Thomas Hobbes says, what is life without the state? What is life before civil society? And he says, uh, it is a, a war of everyone against everyone, a state of continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Men and women escape from that condition in Hobbes' myth by forming a social contract. They agreed to give over uh, some of their freedom to the sovereign, the Leviathan state, mm-hmm. and in return, the state will uh, protect them from uh, the anarchy and violence and fear of the state of nature. Uh, but it isn't assured that the um, civil power can do that. And when it collapses, when the civil state fails in its obligation to protect people, we return in effect to a, a state of nature where we fear each other, where we arm one, our, ourselves, and where we recognize that, you know, the indicting truth, that we are not safe, the government is not protecting us.
1: Mm. Now, Leviathan, written in, what, 1650-ish, right? And uh, my fading memory on this recalls that, uh, as you mentioned, Jack, Hobbes' theory was that um, because of the The terror of the brutish state of of man, that the social contract involved the people giving up some of their rights in order in exchange for um, that, like you said, the protection uniquely provided by the state. So doesn't it require within that social contract an agreement amongst those who constitute the state what it means to protect the people? I'm not sure we have that anymore.
2: No, and in, and specifically look at these uh, uh, semi-assault weapons, the AR-15, uh, which apparently was the weapon used in this uh, in this uh, massacre shooting. Uh, the government, you know, there one in twenty Americans now has has one of these, and they multiply the. The um, the fatality and injury that one person can inflict on many, and therefore they're a, they're a classic case of you know the violation of of rights of everybody's rights by just a tiny by the one person with the gun and the government did uh, you know put a ban on this for ten years or more, and then that ban under George W. Bush and under the Democratic Congress I believe was allowed to lapse. And ever since these uh, you know these the, the, the gun now is called America's Gun. Uh, and the, the portrait of its owners in the Washington Post, they did a study of, of people that own them. Well, the owners are white, male, 40 to 60. They have a higher income than normal. Most have served in the military, and most are Republicans. According to the Post study, only 10% of Democrats own an AR-15. A proper government, a government that was living up to its, its part of the social contract, would have banned this weapon and bought out this weapon, as happened in Australia and in New Zealand and uh, and and made an effort to protect us. Mm. but, but we all know it hasn't. And it's the it isn't so much that we're all going to be exposed to this kind of violence. It is that we know the government isn't doing anything to protect us from it.
1: Mm-hmm. By the way, um, as a quick aside, the story of America's relationship with firearms is the subject of, really good new podcast series from our home station, WBUR. That podcast is called The Gun Machine. So if you haven't already, folks, definitely go and check it out and uh, subscribe to it as the episodes um, get published because it's all related, right? This is a long history that you're talking about, Jack. But I keep hearing those those numbers and those statistics around AR-15 or AR-15 type weapon ownership. I keep coming back to your very... Uh, insightful recalling of Hobbes, right? Because again, in that case, Hobbes says it's the state that's supposed to protect us. But for the in the United States, for quite a while, um, there has also been this ethos of well, we need to be protected from the state, right? I mean, even yes. in the in the NRA's um, mid twentieth century history, there was a NRA leader who infamously said that you know, if people die, that's the price. For freedom, that's the price of freedom, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's a it's a reverse of the of the Hobbes idea. We are fearful of the state because we're given up too much liberty to it, and there's something else involved. You know, Max Weber in his essay "Politics as a Vocation." Lays out, he says, for what is specific to the present is that all other organizations or individuals can assert the right to use physical violence only in so far as the state permits them to do so. The state is regarded as the sole source of the right to use violence. He says that that is the state is the form of human community. That successfully lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence. Quoting uh, Max Weber. Well, that is a. And now I'm quoting Stuart Stevens, the in his new book, uh, "The Conspiracy to End America." He's a uh, former Republican. Political consultant and head headed up, a good. I think Mitt Romney's campaign. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he writes that Republicans reject that Weberian idea that the state is the only legitimate for uh, user wielder of violence. And quote: They have convinced themselves that they live in a dark and dangerous world under constant threat. And he says, while other Western democracies focus on putting computers in classrooms, America is putting guns in classrooms, harming administrators. And then he says, surrounding children with armed protection is how drug lords try to protect their children, not a functioning democracy. He, he makes the point that just the, the, the NRA is making, you've got to protect yourself. The state won't do it. And frankly, isn't that true? The state won't, the state isn't, and what's the only alternative? Uh, Unilateral disarmament? I mean, the logic of getting your gun and having it with you is, it seems to me, inexorable. You can't deny that if if the social contract is broken, that if in effect we're back in a state of nature,
1: get me my gun. Mm. You know, Jack, we keep saying the state, the state. And if memory serves, there's an illustration with Hobbes's book, The Leviathan, of you know the massive monster of the state, right? It's very, it's various tentacles reaching into every part of life, but at the head of uh, of that monstrous figure of the state it is a monarchical head, right? But we don't. That's right. That's not what we have. We have, as you've mentioned, so. Accurately, we have a democracy here, so there isn't necessarily one sole ruler we can look at and say you are failing in your duty to protect the people. We we have parties and individuals of very very sharply divided views over firearms. Like you know, I'm thinking about. Um, there's been reporting since Wednesday when the awful shootings happened that in fact uh, the suspect in the Lewiston, Maine shootings was a U.S. Army reservist, or is a U.S. Army reservist, whose commanders have reportedly said that in mid-July, so just this summer, uh, they had deep concerns that he was acting erratically while the unit was training. And in fact, um, New York State police took the suspect uh, to a community hospital for, or a hospital actually at West Point for evaluation. Now, so that brings up this question of you know, red flag laws. Because every time there's a mass shooting like this, uh, lots of people stand up and say the gun isn't the problem, the shooter's the problem, and must have had a mental illness. But even in those cases where there were alerts beforehand, because of the way red flag laws are structured— it's extraordinarily difficult to get someone put on that list so they cannot own a firearm in the future. So no matter what people say, they are creating policy that will not even allow something as simple as background checks or verifiable concerns about a person's mental mental stability to um, prevent them from owning a deadly weapon, Jack.
2: Yes, so even when laws have been passed, when the government, the state has, you know, uh, broken out of its inertia and passed laws, uh, they aren't enforced. They aren't enforced with anything like the tenacity that the crisis requires, because what's at stake is the legitimacy of the state. Everything is at stake. If you know, it isn't just a matter of, and, and then you read about the bureaucratic hurdles that people have to go through. Well, you, you can't, you've got to get the warrant and you've got to do this. And, and meanwhile, time goes by. We, we ran a, we had a program about how, um, you know, the, 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 there's a boyfriend uh, sort mm-hmm. of loophole in these laws that if you know, in a domestic situation, a marriage situation, a red flag law yeah in, in some theoretical way, can take the gun away. <laughs> doesn't do it much. But there is no even theoretical way if it's just a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. There's a loophole in the law. And we did a touching story, I think about a Missouri woman who was who was murdered uh, by her boyfriend while you know, waiting to see if the state would protect her from his uh, his uh, predictable foreseeable violence. and it wouldn't because he's a boyfriend.
1: Yeah. And that you I'm so glad that you pointed out that show jack because we learned a lot of things about the um, Swiss cheese nature of these laws because the woman who got murdered who you mentioned she had already had a restraining pu- order put on her 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 boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend because he had demonstrated uh, that he was violent towards her. And um she was vocally fearful that he was going to kill her. And so um, she and her mother tried to get him put on a list so that he could not purchase uh, future firearms because as a known committer of domestic violence, they had to go to the FBI. The FBI couldn't get it done. They had mm. to go to the Department of Homeland Security. They had to call mm. members of Congress. And still, I, it, it was next to impossible, as I keep saying, for, to get uh, someone like that put on the list. Very, very good and chilling example, Jack. Um But on the flip side, again, thinking of your example of what is the state's duty and do people feel safe in the failure of the duty of the state, which, as you're saying, that failure has been brought about by various members of the state itself. But there was someone that you wanted to talk about that uh, really kind of is eye-opening regarding Americans' actual fears and what leads them to buy the kinds of firearms we've been talking about. You wanted to talk about David French, right?
2: Yes, David French. He's a columnist uh, for the uh, New York Times, but he's really a kind of model public intellectual, a kind of public philosopher. Reading his columns, you feel... Uh, that this is a wise person. I mean, there's no flippancy. There's just intelligence and compassion and steady uh, reason. So I was surprised to hear him say on NPR that he, in fact, owns
1: a gun. And we've got a cut of that interview. It was David French speaking with NPR's Rachel Martin.
3: One of the things that the Second Amendment does is it protects your right of self-defense. So for example, you know my family has been under threat off and on for several years and um, because of, we
0: should say because of because of your writing and yes and different issues you've taken a position on yes
3: yes and in that circumstance I feel like I have to defend myself against a foreseeable threat and the foreseeable threat is a person who possesses either a semi-automatic rifle or a semi-automatic pistol and so that's what we use to defend our family is a semi-automatic Rifle at home, and then Mm -hmm. when you carry a weapon, a semi-automatic pistol.
0: You have that in your home, David?
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: An AR-15 style Yes, yes. And it makes you feel safer?
3: It makes me safer. It's not just Mm. a feeling. It's a reality. It does make me safer.
1: So, Jack, did it surprise you that French said, it makes me safer? It, 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 It did. I mean, it seemed,
2: and he insisted on it, as you heard, uh... It makes him safer. I, 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 you know, I guess he's thinking of a situation of siege where people come in, and therefore he can, you know, he can outshoot them with his AR-15. I mean, that, that is to say, if it's one thing to say um, it makes me fear less, but he says it makes me mm-hmm. safer. That it's almost like he's at the state the state of imagining a siege where he can, in fact, outshoot the, the, the person coming in to do his family harm, and what was shocking to me about it is, you know, it's easy to identify with this bookish, uh, you know, writer, you know, and I'm <laughs> thinking, my God, should I arm up? Uh, you, you know, it's like he's, <laughs> there's a certain subset of people that he would be a, uh, you know, he'd be a kind of a, a leader for, I mean, is this what we need to do, and would that make us safer? And of course, everything we read says it makes you less safe, because of course the chance of the deadly chance of suicide is always there. The chance of someone stealing the gun is always there. The chance of a child—oh my God! Just think of that, getting a hold of the gun. So I don't—I <laughs> don't think it makes you safer. I think the data says that. But you can't—if—if if even a man like that is arming up, what does it say about the rest of us?
1: Hmm. So, Jack, one more question about um, again the uh, that social contract and the state not being able to fulfill it by not keeping people safe. Um, another part of that era's thinking about the duty of governments is that um, the uh, uh, the state is given so much power by virtue of the consent of the governed, right? But mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's lots of evidence, lots of polling that shows that for a couple of key issues when it comes to guns in the United States, there actually is quite a bit of public consensus. People want red flag laws. People want background checks. At least in those two areas, it's, there's overwhelming support for that. And yet there's a deep vein of resistance in Congress for enacting those very things because of the influence of the gun lobby, because of the influence of a certain set of um, very, very devoted uh, defenders of the current interpretation of the Second Amendment. All of that is to say, is this not potentially a case in which the state is acting in a way um, that is not via the consent of the governed in America?
2: Well, that's another departure from, from the democratic model of the social contract, isn't it? Uh, sure. Uh, a minority, you know, we talk about minority rule in America, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the drift of the Republican Party directly to minority rule, gerrymandering, all the rest. Here's a flagrant instance of it where you know i've seen 80% want universal back you know the numbers are as you say overwhelming you get into about the 60s when you talk about uh, assault weapon ban but still 60 that's a that's a lot 60% of the people but the government isn't responding minority rule and and not just minority rule but rule by this by this fear-generating and exceedingly, uh, from what all the reporting indicates, corrupt and and seemingly flailing organization, the National Rifle Association, uh, that, that, that grip, they, the grip they have on the Republican Party seems almost unbreakable. And, and so we have the situation of fear, we have the situation of mass violence, and then what do we have? We had Trump coming along saying, I alone can mm. fix it.
1: Mm.
2: He's telling his people government has failed, and that really sets the precedent for violent action by non-government actors.
1: Mm. Okay, Jack. Well, listeners to the Jack Pod now are starting to see uh, bright threads throughout the uh, the different topics that you address every week, and this is a perfect example of that because one of your listeners, Aaron Pacey from Erie, Pennsylvania, left us a message about episode six from a couple of weeks ago when you talked about cacistocracy, right, or govern uh, government by uh, the, the least qualified, if I can put it that way. Um, and Aaron wanted to tell you that, yes, uh, for him, it's possible that if Donald Trump is elected again, um, he might take action on a certain plan that he has, and this is what that plan
4: is. My wife and I are currently looking at what it takes to move out of America Uh, because if Donald Trump wins, that's what we're doing. We're taking our two kids, um, one high school, one middle school age, uh, and we're leaving.
1: Okay. now it might seem like, well, that's quite extreme and maybe he's just saying it and won't do it. But then um, he went on, Jack, to tell us about why, why they're even thinking about leaving the country Uh, If Trump wins again. And um, so Aaron told us his answer is um, it has a lot to do with violence.
4: If he becomes president, it's going to be bloody here in America, whether it's going to look like Ireland during the Troubles or um, the American Civil War in some way. I don't know. But I mean, there's no way it doesn't get bloody. And uh, I'm not ready. I'm not willing to die uh, fighting Trump. And his maga millions. I'm not willing to die, and I'm not willing to have my family die for it. So we're looking online. How how do you leave America,
1: mm. Jack? What do you think? God, I'm sure how
4: many people
2: must feel the same same thing. Of course, I can remember people
1: saying that about Richard
2: Nixon. Um, so, but but boy, I mean, he. You could hear the you could hear the conviction and the fear. In his in his voice, you know, he mentions the he mentions models of this uh, Northern Ireland, where and, and the American Civil War. But here's the problem: uh, uh, we're all mixed up in America today. In his county, Erie County, for example, Biden got sixty six thousand votes, Trump got sixty five thousand. That is to say, every other person there is with Trump. You can't even begin to talk about any sort of civil con- conflict even in northern ireland you know the communities were separated segregation was the rule not in america even in california trump got 6 million votes there's no geographic basis for anything even like a, a civil war but civil disturbance riots violence mayhem everywhere would seem to be vi- uh, to be uh, possible and you know he mentions the case, the case of Trump winning well it seems certain to me that that Trump will not accept losing and of course that brings out the question of would there be mass violence on the other side not from Trump supporters but from people that are just demanding that democracy work and what what effect will that have and of course now we have a if the republicans are reelected and if there's a tie in the Electoral College, we have Mike Johnson would be very happy to deliver the House of Representatives to uh, to Donald Trump as a new president. So the dangers uh, that could prompt someone to leave are just so uh, there. You, you can't exaggerate them. You know, there's a phrase from Coleridge, the imagination of disaster. Here's Trump being insouciant about voting, because voting, it's as if he doesn't even, not even thinking about the election. I'm not going to accept it, no matter what the result is. Then we had a little election uh, that went astray. So we have to be careful. You got to get out there. and You got to watch those voters. You don't have to vote. Don't worry about voting. The voting, we got plenty of votes. You got to watch election night. You know, it used to be election day, election night. Now it's election month. Now it's election period. Some of these things going for 53 days. It's terrible. He, he's telling his people, don't worry about voting. We're not, we're not going to deal with anything so mundane. We're just going to say we won.
1: Well, Jack, uh, Aaron wasn't the only person who had some follow up questions or thoughts for you uh, by listening to a, a jackpot from the past. I want to take this moment to remind folks that we really, really do value you being in conversation with Jack through sending us your thoughts and and comments to the Jackpot. So for this week, we want to know from you, you what do you think about Jack's um, referencing of Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan about how the state has failed in its duty to keep the people safe? And so therefore, uh, that potentially is uh, one explanation for why Gun ownership, and specifically AR-15s, is so high in this country. Just curious what you think about that. So we would love it if you could send us your comments via the On Point Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. Because as you can tell, we do listen to every single one of them. And Jack, speaking of, we're going to take a quick break here, but we got a lot of... uh, Comments from last regarding last week's pod where you talked about uh, pathologizing in American politics. So we'll hear from those listeners in just a moment.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com OnPoint. That's Indeed.com OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com onpoint On Point today to get 10% off your first month. Well, we're back with the jackpot,
1: and... Of course, it's with Jack Beatty, On Point's News Analyst. And on last week's episode, Jack, you talked about the dubious history of pathologizing presidential candidates in terms of their state of mental health. And specifically, you talked about how that's happening with former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden.
3: I mean, I can't even imagine having to talk on in, in front of people all the time. And any little mistake you have is going to make you fair game to be the identified patient of the hour.
1: Now that's jackpot listener Jessica Levy from Dunedin, Florida. And here's a little bit more of what she had to say.
3: Whether it be gossip or a frustration with someone in our life, there is always a way to parlay that into some sort of disorder. And in politics or in pop culture, this is absolutely no different, especially... Currently, with how mainstream uh, mental health discussions have become, it is super commonplace to read a quick description of a mental disorder and then apply it to somebody that we know or hear about. So
1: I gather from that that Jessica is saying we do it to everybody, not just politicians, and most likely inappropriately so. Now, here's another comment from Kyle Joyner. Kyle's from Helena, Montana, and is a former mental health therapist.
3: I think one of the problems with past, but more importantly, the contemporary use of uh, psychiatric name-calling, is that oftentimes media or other pundit figures do not define the terminology that they are throwing around. For example, in your segment, you uh, use the term narcissist. Well, you didn't define what that is or what that would mean, and could you essentially pick out a couple of people on the street and ask them at random what they think a narcissist is and would would you get the right definition? This is, I think, a major problem.
1: Okay, Jack, what do you think?
2: Well, on narcissism, I quite take that point, um, and yet the myth of Narcissus, right, is is a is a myth about human behavior and about self-love and about uh, illusion. It's about character and how that is undermined by our own um, our own self-infatuation. In other words. It's a loaded term, psychiatrically, and of course, that sort of, in a way, it says, well, that person doesn't have much agency; they're just a malignant narcissist, just acting out. Rather than this person is morally responsible, blinded by self-love, and you know, uh, we need to we need to reclaim this psychiatric uh, lingo. We need to reclaim all that for moral judgment. We, you know, Dr. Johnson puts it very well. We are moralists by necessity and geometricians only by chance. We're therapists only by chance. We have to be moralists all the time, concerned with the question of how to live. Wow.
1: Okay, Jack, so um, you offer such a richness in uh, the jackpot that people are really listening very, very carefully to what you say. And I'm going to give you this example from a comment we received from Paul Kenyon, who's in Bridgeport, Vermont. And uh, Paul really picked up on your mentioning of the Goldwater rule regarding how, you know, that psychiatrists or psychologists wouldn't publicly comment on the – mental health of a, a political candidate. And he picked up on that, and here's what Paul proposed. I wish to offer what should be a corollary of the Goldwater
3: Rule, which limits psychiatric name-calling. As Magna said, the Goldwater Rule prohibits a member of the professional psychiatric community from offering psychological opinions about individuals whom they had not personally examined. Please recognize the parallel between the Goldwater rule and what limits scientific consensus. The only scientific consensus is that among people who are
2: intimately familiar with the specific aspect of the science being discussed.
1: Huh. I'm not sure what I think of that, Jack, so I'll just hand it off to you.
2: Well, if I think about climate change in that way, I'm a little alarmed. Is, is, Is Paul suggesting that we can't, Talk. Uh, we can't debate. We can't. Um, you know. We, we have to leave that to the, the scientists because it's we don't. You know. We the the, 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 the the it's too it's too much for us. We only only the experts can can speak about it. That worries me uh, a great deal. I think I think the difference is this. The psychiatric uh, uh, name calling has a terrible history in the Soviet Union and, and for that matter, in Nazi Germany and in this country um, with terrible violations of civil liberties. So it goes right to the question of human dignity, and you deny that to people with these uh, psychiatric labels. I don't think that's true of any other of these scientific matters. The public, I think, should debate them. I don't think we should just say, you know, climate change is too important for the for the climate scientists. It is. We all have to debate it. And I'm afraid the idea of a sort of uh, you know, uh, let the experts talk. We don't, you know, they they need to represent their own consensus, and we can't get into it. If I'm reading Paul correctly, that would worry me and just in terms of that one issue of climate change
1: mm, interesting. and I'll offer this, that if, Paul, if that is indeed what you were suggesting, um, that uh, uh, consensus can only be had amongst uh, a narrow band of experts, well, then that just that just pulls the rug out from my entire reason for being the host of On Point, because I'm not an expert <laughs> in anything, but uh, always eager to hear and learn from others. Well, that was a very, very uh, dense and rich uh, podcast for for us this week, Jack. So I I. Blanchett asking you if you know what you've got in store for next week. Well,
2: I thought we would talk about immigration and uh, and, and specifically about the uh, Immigration Act of 1965. It is a classic case of unintended consequences.
1: Okay, so that's for next week. Not giving yourself a break, I see, Jack, but that's it for this week's JackPod. Jack Beattie, On Point News Analyst, thank you so very much. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.